Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Alex, uh, Zister Alex Capitan, and I am an activist, an educator, an editor, an organizer, and I also am a Unitarian Universalist. And I'm queer, and I'm trans, I identify as genderqueer and non-binary. I'm white, I'm a young adult, I live in western Massachusetts with my partner and our mini menagerie. We've got two dogs, a cat, a bunny, two geese, and six chickens. It's quite fun. I do a lot of interfaith work, and I also work with congregations that want to increase their inclusion of queer and trans people. And I do editing work. I have an online ministry in helping people use language anti-oppressively. So it's a lovely, fun grab bag of things, and I'm excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. We're excited to have you. So we kind of want to just open with, what is a non-binary identity? Well, the word non-binary has been in vogue not all that long. So if you're listening and you are like, what? I don't even know this word. Is this some kind of computer code? Um, Don't worry. I started identifying as genderqueer myself probably about 10 or 12 years ago. And at that point in time, genderqueer was still a pretty recent term. It had been around for maybe 10 or 12 years itself. And non-binary didn't really exist yet in any kind of trending way. I started referring to myself as non-binary when it came to both gender and sexuality pretty early on. And I was super excited when that word took off. It was certainly not me who did it. I'm not that famous (laughs) or powerful. So you're on a podcast now. (laughs) Basically um, what it it means, and sometimes people say gender non-binary, sometimes people just say non-binary, and it means a person who doesn't have an internal sense of self uh, entirely as either woman, girl, or boy, man. So folks who are non-binary have all kinds of different identities when it comes to gender. We can identify as genderqueer like I do. People identify as agender, uh, two-spirit, multi-gender, polygender, gender fluid. There's lots of words that people use to describe their internal sense of self when it comes to gender. And if that internal sense of self is not uh, entirely or in part man, boy, or woman, girl, that's a non-binary gender. Does that make sense? It Mm -hmm. does. So I'm really curious, uh, is a non-binary or one of any of the kind of options, this kind of menu of options for people who aren't solidly man, boy, woman, girl, is it a transgender identity? Great question. Super common question. There is no binary when it comes to any of this, right? So sometimes it can be a little tricky because there's so many different identities in the world and there's so many different people and ways of experiencing gender. So at the most base level, the word transgender or trans simply means to have an identity and internal sense of self that doesn't align according to societal expectations with the sex that you were assigned at birth. That's what being trans means. So under that definition, all non-binary people are trans because we all have an internal sense of self that doesn't align entirely or in part with the sex that we were assigned at birth. That said, 
not all non-binary people identify with the term trans or transgender. So it's complicated, right? And in a large part, one of the main reasons why a lot of non-binary people don't identify with that frame and that word is because the mainstream has taken on and co-opted the word trans slash transgender to refer pretty much exclusively to people who are what I would call binary identified trans folk, meaning folks who were assigned female at birth and are men or folks who are assigned male at birth and are women. That's not <laughs> the full story when it comes to trans community, trans identities, but because the mainstream has used the word in that way, it means that a lot of non-binary people have distanced themselves from it because it doesn't, that does not speak to their identity. It's complex. It depends on the context that you're in and all kinds of other things. But at base, that's how I describe it. Do you find that people are kind of quick to catch on to the idea of gender more as a spectrum than as a binary or kind of more as an individual experience than girls wear dresses, boys wear suits? I think so much of this in terms of how we each as individuals and as communities engage with difference, engage with um, folks and concepts and groups that really turn upside down a lot of the fundamental truths that we were taught. How we engage with those sorts of things completely depends on context. It depends on our own experiences, on our own context. So if you're five years old and you have an environment around you that encourages you to explore and be creative and ask questions, you've got no problem understanding that gender is bigger than boy and girl. Nine out of 10, probably 99 out of 100 five-year-olds who have the space to explore and be creative and question are like, yeah, cool. Not a big deal, right? If you're 90 years old and your life experience has taught you something very specific about how gender is constructed and who is what and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and what reality is, you're going to have a lot harder time wrapping your brain around the idea that everything you've been taught about gender is a lie. And those are just two examples, right? So based on people's life experience and context, it can be super simple to be like, yeah, sure, this is not a big deal to think about the fact that just as <laughs> there aren't two colors in the world, there are also not two genders in the world. Just as biology is incredibly diverse, so too are uh, identities and experiences. There's lots of ways in which that can be something that people embrace or something that feels threatening. I think that's a really interesting perspective on it. I think some people come off as very motivated not to see it anything in any other way, you know, and that's always kind of the struggle. Like regardless of age, some people are just determined. <laughs> so I've spoken to a lot of women who say, like, yeah, I feel very masculine in certain spheres of my life, like, but I, I know I'm a woman, you know? So what is the difference between being non-binary as an identity or one of the many options for the kind of umbrella term non-binary? I was thinking of the phrase, like, a man who says that he's in touch with his feminine side. Or can, right. can a woman be in touch with her masculine side? Does that mean that they're non-binary, I guess? Yeah, 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 totally. Ultimately, when it comes to our internal sense of self, 
it's up to every individual person, right? So that's something that each person has to really journey and, and discern and grapple with for themselves. Um, and that's just always going to be true, no matter what I say, right? So I just want to start with that. But I can tell you from personal experience that I asked that question of myself a bit when I was, you know, really in a place of, of curiosity around my gender and, and what was real for me. I have never, ever felt as though the trappings of what is considered to be normative for women fit. It was like an outfit that just was scritchy and scratchy and I could not fit it on. And so it's a big piece of my journey for myself as somebody who was assigned female at birth and relatively socialized that way. <laughs> I wasn't really socialized, so I laugh about this, <laughs> but like it's as much as I was socialized at all. I was socialized as a girl child. But like how much of that is me rejecting patriarchy? How much of that is me rejecting sexism? And how much is of that is me having an internal self sense of self that is not girl and is not woman. And sometimes it's really hard to tell, right? If I lived in a world in which patriarchy and sexism did not exist, who would I be? I have no idea because I can't even imagine that world most days. You know, some days I feel like I get a glimmer. I'm working toward that world, certainly. But because gender is culturally constructed, there's no way for me to know. There's no vacuum or <laughs> science experiment that I can do to figure out, you know, what would be true for me. What I do know is that as I started putting the pieces together and started to make choices that helped me feel more at ease and helped me feel more myself, it led me down a path that eventually I was very clear that not only do I not have an internal sense of self as a girl or a woman, I've never had an internal sense of self as a girl or a woman, even though I didn't know how to articulate that for at least half my life, right? When I was a kid, there was no models or anything. I didn't have access to the internet because I was born in 1984. So that just hadn't happened yet based on my class and my geographic location and my age, right? So I didn't have access to anyone who was anything like me. <laughs> so for a long time, I did wonder because I knew that I didn't have a what's come to be seen as the dominant narrative for a binary identified trans person. Right. I knew that I wasn't a man. I was very clear that I didn't identify as a man, didn't identify as a boy. I did not have an experience of being born in the wrong body. That phrase doesn't speak to me at all. I didn't even really feel like I had any sort of diagnosable uh, gender dysphoria of any kind. I've since come to realize looking back. Oh, right. <laughs> My like extreme sense of discomfort during puberty wasn't just because puberty is terrible. It's also because gender didn't fit. Sometimes it's really hard to sort of sift through all of the messages that we are given and that we're, we're trying to make our way through to be like, well, this narrative isn't mine and this narrative isn't mine. And what is real? What is true for me? So I don't know if that helps at all. But what I can tell you is that there is a difference between a woman who is either in touch with what she considers her masculine side or is just a masculine woman. There's lots of masculine women out there. There are butch people out there, or butch women out there. That is a thing. <laughs> Those aren't like that's that is a real, real legit identity. And there's so many different ways to be. And there's also folks out there who don't identify as women and are also masculine, but and were assigned female at birth. And there's overlap between these groups of people. 
there's folks out there who sort of feel as though they are a little bit non-binary, but still really resonate with the concept of womanhood, even if it's just because they have been put in that box for a very long time and they, they feel a sense of camaraderie with women, even if it has never really quite felt right. Like, that's still legit. All of these things are legit. So ultimately, I think what's challenging is finding out what's true for yourself and allowing yourself the freedom to explore the words and the behaviors and the choices that bring you in better touch with yourself, regardless of what labels or other narratives or mainstream mythologies are out there, because that's not you. And that's hard. I won't lie to you. That's a challenging journey. Yeah, it sounds hard. The more I hear about it, the more I might understand the people motivated not to understand it. It seems kind of easy to be like, oh, there's two options and you've already been assigned, so don't worry about it. Right. (laughs) So can you tell if somebody is non-binary by looking at them? Do all non-binary people look androgynous? So there's this whole thing around, like, how many people listening have heard of gaydar, okay? Gaydar is this idea that you can tell from looking whether a person is straight or not. And it's also totally not true, right? There are so many people out there that you have no way to know. And really everybody out there, you have no way of knowing what their gen- what their sexual orientation is by looking at them. When people say gaydar, what they're actually talking about is gender variance, right? They're talking about gender nonconformity. They're saying that I can tell by looking because I'm looking for gender cues that tell me that a person is different in terms of their sexual orientation, which is fundamentally flawed, right? Because even though there are a lot of effeminate gay men out there and a lot of masculine lesbian women out there, that's just two of like 15 million options (laughs) in terms of how these things might align. There's also lots and lots of masculine gay men, lots and lots of feminine lesbian women, and lots and lots of people who are bisexual, asexual, queer, omnisexual, pansexual, all kinds of different um, sexual orientations, sexual orientations that don't even really have a sense of existing in a Western concept like two-spirit and aggressive and stud and butch and femme and all these things that start start blending uh, sexual orientation with gender expression, right? So no, you can't tell from looking anything about a person's uh, uh, gender or sexuality, right? So same thing with non-binary identity. As non-binary people are starting to gain slightly more visibility in the mainstream, which is great, we have to be careful of the sorts of mythologies that start to spout up about what does it mean to be non-binary, that you have to be androgynous to be non-binary. You have to have a gender-neutral name to be non-binary. You have to go by gender-neutral pronouns to be non-binary. All of these things are absolutely not true. And it's really hurtful when these sorts of myths pop up because there's all kinds of people for whom that's not true. And as we just talked about, it's already hard enough to navigate your way through all of these messages and figure out what's true for yourself without people then layering more mythologies onto what does it mean to be non-binary. So I've got friends who get perceived as feminine or femme women 100% of the time in their lives, and that's not how they identify at all. They identify as non-binary. They go by they and them pronouns. They have traditionally feminine names. They are fine with that. They have, you know, bodies that other people perceive to be very feminine or women looking, and they're fine with that sometimes, sometimes not. 
that doesn't mean anything in terms of their internal sense of self, right? So that's just one example. And then, too, there's plenty of androgynous people out there who do identify as women or as men, right? And that's legit. Internal sense of self and gender expression are totally different factors. They both relate to each other, certainly. They impact each other, but they're completely separable in terms of all the different, like, <laughs> pieces and parts that can fit together in many, many different ways. And that's also true for biology, right? If we're going to go to that sort of, how do we even conceive of gender, biological sex, gender expression, and gender identity, which is your internal sense of self, all three of these things are totally different factors that can shift and inform each other, but none of them are static, and all of them, to a certain degree, are culturally constructed and depend on our environment that we're in, yeah? Yeah, and let's not even get started on the way that binary biological sex is also an oversimplification. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other podcast, Matt. Yeah, let's not even get into that, but... Um... But if you are interested in learning more about that, since we don't have time to get into it here, you can totally check out these really great YouTube videos about it. There's two of them. They're by Riley J. Dennis, who's amazing. One of them is trans women are not biologically male. And the other one is male and female are binary, but people aren't. So check those out. They're great. I had originally asked Alex to do an episode called gender queer 101 and alex corrected me and said maybe you want to do non-binary 101 can you explain the difference in some of those terms that you said in the beginning like agender and so on yeah totally and just to be clear i didn't it wasn't a correction as much as a like suggestion in terms of broadening the scope of the podcast i don't want anyone to think that saying gender queer is wrong or incorrect gender queer is great and really where this gets back to is how quickly language can evolve and shift in terms of identity in general, but particularly in terms of gender identity most recently. Thanks to the Internet and social media, people are finding each other in ways that we weren't able to before the Internet existed. And it means that we're able to find better language and share dif different language and, and improve all the time. And for a lot of people, this is really frustrating. For a lot of people, this is really overwhelming. I always invite people to think of it as a beautiful, wonderful thing, because it means that folks who have literally been written out of existence for centuries are able to articulate who we are for, in new ways, which is a gorgeous thing, even though it's potentially overwhelming to the English teachers among us. <laughs> and as a copy editor, haha. <laughs> ha you can try that argument with me and I will have lots of rebuttals. So genderqueer came about before non-binary did as a term that was in popular use. And actually, if we want to take it back a little bit further, because I am a nerd when it comes to language, one of the things that a lot of people don't know that I learned from one of my mentors, Kate Bornstein, who's also totally fabulous and everyone should read everything that Kate has ever written, is the actual origins of the word transgender. Originally, trans was invented as a term to set apart the folks who had no desire to medically transition from the folks who did have a desire to medically transition, who at the time were popularly referred to as transsexual. So transsexual folks were the folks who are assigned male at birth and identify as women, and the folks who were assigned female at birth and identify as men, and desired to go through a medical transition process that would help them live their lives 
authentically and fully and, and be perceived in the world as the women and men that they truly were. These days, transsexual uh, still gets used by a lot of folks um, as a self-identity term, and particularly in other countries. In the UK, transsexual is far more popular than it is in the United States. For the most part, in the US and in lots of other places, transsexual is seen as a very medicalized uh, term, so most people don't like it as much anymore. But that's where that started, right? To distinguish ourselves from transsexual folks, people who today are generally considered non-binary adopted the word transgender to say that their genders were different than what they had been assigned at birth and they didn't desire to change anything about their biology um, or their bodies. That was the best language that they had at the time. And Kate Bornstein herself today identifies as non-binary and has also identified as things like gender outlaw, the name of one of her books. So when I earlier talked about the fact that the mainstream has co-opted the word trans, that's what I'm talking about, is actually the word transgender was invented by people who today we would call non-binary and yet the mainstream took it on and made it synonymous with transsexual, which is super sad and problematic and ultimately gets back to the fact that the mainstream really doesn't want non-binary people to exist. The mainstream also doesn't want trans people at all to exist. But if trans people are going to exist, it's certainly a lot more comfortable for people who want the gender binary or are invested in the gender binary to exist to think about the fact that, oh, there's just some people who start out in one box and end up in the other than the fact that the entire system is a lie. Right. <laughs> so you can see how this happens. Um, so once that started to happen and once we started to try on different languages and stuff like that, genderqueer as a word came to be in the 90s, I think, and started to really more specifically articulate the fact that a person who identifies as genderqueer is queering gender, is is subverting the notion of gender and the and the construct of the gender binary entirely, right? By virtue of who we are and the way that we feel inside. So that's where genderqueer came about. And so a lot of people started identifying as genderqueer. And at the same time, that wasn't the entire story, right? Because that's one way of of sort of seeing gender. And then there are other things, there are other ways of, of experiencing gender, like agender folks, who also totally, by their very existence, prove that the gender binary doesn't exist. Agender folks tend to experience themselves as having a lack of gender identity, as they're not part of that at all. So I saw an illustration recently of uh, gender that was illustrated as a globe, and there was Manlandia. <laughs> Right. And like these different land masses of gender. And then there was this satellite and the satellite was agender. Right. So this idea that agender is totally outside of this construction entirely. And then there are other ways of experiencing gender, like by gender folks who identify as both male and female. There are polygender folks, omnigender folks who who, again, feel like a lot of genders as opposed to just a gender that's neither. And then there are folks like Two-Spirit folks who have a completely different cultural context for understanding gender because Two-Spirit folks are indigenous, generally indigenous to the United States, or I should say North America, really, and come from any number of different indigenous traditions and cultures. But that term, which was initially used by only a couple of tribes in North America, has become an umbrella term for a lot of folks who feel themselves to either be non-conforming in terms of gender and or non-conforming in terms of sexuality. So there's no good way to understand two-spirit 
outside of an indigenous context. It's totally specific to that culture, right? That's going to be true all over the world, right? Because gender is constructed, there are so many different ways in which people understand their genders because it depends on their context and their culture and how the rest of their life looks and the, and the truths and the beliefs that, that circulate in those cultures, right? So genderqueer came about initially as a way of trying to gain more specificity when we're talking about those of us who don't identify exclusively or at all as men or women. But then as more identity terms cropped up, it became clear that there needed to be a way of describing all of us without making genderqueer an umbrella term when it is such a specific thing as well, right? So non-binary is what grew out of that need. So non-binary is, is a way of understanding that there are a whole lot of different ways of, of identifying that all don't fit within that binary, um, but are unique in themselves. There's lots of different ways of experiencing gender. And that's how that happened. But people still, because this all evolves so quickly, genderqueer still gets used as an umbrella term sometimes by many people. Everybody gets to claim the language that is best for them. So if somebody is using a term in a way that doesn't necessarily line up with how the rest of the community is using the term, oh, well, that's their right. So nothing that I say in this podcast should ever be used to tell somebody that they're using the wrong language to talk about themselves, because that's just not true. It's weird to feel old as a non-binary person, because <laughs> I'm not old at all. But it's a beautiful thing that, again, because of the Internet, so many young people are able to explore and claim language in new ways. And I'm part of this Facebook group called Non-Binary Gender Pride. And there's thousands and thousands of people in it. And a lot of them are younger. And so it's just really amazing and also really like overwhelming and disconcerting to be like, I shouldn't be an elder. It's also sobering because within trans community, a lot of us are elders at very young ages because of the fact that so many people either are subjected to violence and are murdered or take their own lives because that's so huge or go underground because they have to for survival. You know, so the fact that we have so few legit elders is is actually really hard. And so that's like a piece of it. While at the same time, I'm also like super thrilled that there are so many young folks that being 34 renders me on the like <laughs> way past the median <laughs> of the community. There's something <laughs> that Karen and I were discussing. Um, I was trying to join a socialist memes Facebook page and they have those like gatekeeper questions, which I understand why they don't want to deal with trolls, you know, stuff like is racism real? Do you know, are women oppressed? And one of the questions was, how many genders are there? And I wrote at least three, probably more. And I didn't get into the group. <laughs> Do you have an opinion on this question? <laughs> you were wrong. <laughs> I'm a little confused by the idea of using that as a gatekeeper question on a group that has that ostensibly doesn't have anything to do with gender. That's kind of weird. If it was a gatekeeper question on a group for non-binary people, that would make a lot of sense. Like we don't want folks in a non-binary group who are convinced that there's only two genders because that's just going to get hurtful really fast. Uh, <laughs> right. So I'm not sure what's going on with that. It sounds like that's a really solid answer to me. So it's possible that whoever's running this group is very invested in the gender binary and is actually trying to filter people out who aren't 
there is like a whole like faction of people, especially on the internet, who are convinced that this is some sort of liberal brainwashing. Like people who use the term regressive leftist or whatever. Yeah. Okay. It's possible because you don't know, you know. I did not consider that. That that is a, that is an interesting point. Alex, would you like to talk about some of your educational work with the UUA? Oh sure. I consider myself a minister. I'm not ordained. I uh, call myself a lay minister. I don't say that to say anything about the process that a lot of people go through to become ordained. That's totally great and legit and awesome. Because of my call to ministry, uh, going to to seminary is not a thing that makes sense at this point in my life. Um, But I'm not trying to say that that's not a totally valid and wonderful course of action. So I call myself a, a lay minister, and I have a lot of Uh, different ministries. I started out my adult career path, I guess, if you can call it that, with an internship at South End Press, which was a majority women of color run publishing collective. It was a collective publishing company, which I don't think there are any more of them because I think they were the last one. They certainly were the last women of color run collective publishing company. And unfortunately, they're now defunct. But they taught me that publishing could be a form of activism which was fabulous because, as you've already noted, I'm nerdy when it comes to words. I decided I wanted to go into publishing, and eventually I landed a job at Beacon Press, which was wonderful. Beacon Press is a fabulous publishing house that is actually owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association, little known fact, and is a division of the national office, the headquarters of the religion. But they exist very autonomously and see themselves as really putting into the world books that represent the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism without being a religious press, because they're not a religious press. They publish progressive nonfiction. And a lot of the authors are not UU, so... Exactly. Most of the authors aren't UU. Most of the staff aren't UU. I happen to be UU. It was great. Um, and, you know, after working there for a number of years, I started to feel a call, really, and ended up moving upstairs in the same building <laughs> to work for the national headquarters of Unitarian Universalism. And I was doing work with congregations around anti-racism and LGBTQ inclusion. Um, and that is work that I just absolutely adore. And so eventually, after working there for, you know, five years or so, I struck out on my own and um, decided to follow this call on my own. And since then, I've uh, co-founded a collective called the Transforming Hearts Collective that uh, has a mission of basically supporting spaces where queer and trans people can access spirituality and resilience and healing, and both inside and outside of organized religion. And so part of that work is working with congregations to be those spaces. And so I'm super excited. We're working right now on a pilot radical welcome program that will help specifically targeted toward welcoming congregations that want to take that to the next level in terms of what it means to to really intersectionally see ourselves as being forces for liberation, both inside and outside our congregational walls for people of all different identities. And um, that's really exciting work. And at the same time, I also started this sort of public online ministry around language and helping people use language in ways that are anti-oppressive. And that's called Radical Copy Editor. (laughs) And it's been really fun. It's about all the ways in which we can use language to help create more space and more communication and more acceptance and, and liberation in the world, as opposed to using language in ways that restrict 
and oppress and and harm each other because language is a tool and it can do either of those things. Let's use it to create the world that we're trying to see and describe the world that we're trying to create. That's what that project is all about. So that's what I'm up to these days. It's a lot of fun. And you can totally check out both of those projects of mine at RadicalCopyEditor.com and TransformingHeartsCollective.org. You use the term queering gender where you use the word queer as a verb. So what does that mean? I love the word queer. It's one of my favorite words. It might actually be my favorite word. And the reason why I love it is because it's so complex. It's so multi-layered. It has so many different meanings and so many different contexts. And, you know, the first and foremost definition that you have to think about when you use this word is the fact that it started out as a slur and it started out as a word that was intended to cause harm and violence. And so a lot of people still have a visceral reaction to the word queer and it's triggering for them. And that's super legit and super real. Trauma is real. I would never ever talk about this word or use this word without acknowledging the fact that it is still used to cause harm and it still harms people regardless of whether the intent is to harm people or not, right? So that's just real. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about it, that it can mean so many different things all at the same time. As a minister, I liken the word queer to the word God. They're both really interesting words, right? And they both can be used as a weapon and they can be used as a tool for liberation. It all depends on how you wield it. I mean, as the great Anita Franco said, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. But every tool can also be a tool for liberation if you hold it right. Queer and God are both like that. The word God is not an inherently oppressive just because some people have been hurt by it and by the definition that is used by human beings for that word. Queer is also not inherently oppressive. It just has been for a lot of people. So that's definition number one for that word, right? Definition number two for that word is a self-identity. So queer to me is the word that I use to describe my sexual orientation. It's the only word that I've ever found that does justice to my internal sense of self when it comes to sexual orientation. I am attracted to all different genders. I've been in relationships with people of all different genders. I don't actually see gender as the primary thing that determines my attraction to people at all. That's not even that relevant. There are so many other things that are more relevant when it comes to what's going to turn me on or, you know, pique my interest about another person. And to me, as a non-binary person, queer is a word to describe sexual orientation that is ungendered in every possible way. So bisexual is a word that a lot of people use to, in ways that are divorced from the gender binary, a lot of the mainstream bisexual community now uses that term to mean attraction to two or more genders or attraction to, you know, my gender and other genders. These are some of the, the definitions that get used. That's great. That word just doesn't speak to me. It doesn't really describe my internal sense of self. I think one thing that's really important to understand when we're talking about cultural context, especially, right, is like when I was talking about two-spirit, you can't just say that two-spirit is another word for gay or it's another word for trans because that's not true. Two-spirit can't be understood outside of an indigenous context. And same thing with queer. Queer isn't just another word for bisexual, just because there's sort of an overlap there in terms of the definition. It's a unique understanding of self. So that's definition number two, right, for the word queer. Definition number three of the word queer is basically an umbrella term to describe 
all folks who are marginalized or differ from the norm when it comes to sexual orientation. That's often how it's used. And that's not always ideal because, like we just talked about, some people that that might apply to actually experience queer to be a really harmful word. So it's tricky to use it as an umbrella term, but that's still another way in which it gets used. And it has been used that way for decades. This isn't new. <laughs> All right. And then uh, definition number four is that queer is often used to mean a sort of political understanding of the world. It's a framework for understanding a lot of things. And it specifically speaks to nonconformity and really pushing against the status quo, subverting norms, being actively in opposition to a lot of the, the norms that intersect and dictate oppression within our society. You know, when we start talking about queer in that way, it takes on a harder edge when it comes to a radical political identity. And in that way, to a certain degree, who you're attracted to, what your gender is, don't really matter that much. You can claim a politically queer identity regardless if you're ascribing to this definition of the word. And so these four definitions really, they weave in and out from each other. So one of the reasons why, as a, as a personal identity term, queer speaks to me for my sexual orientation is because of that radical connotation, because so much of who I am is grounded in anti-racism, anti-classism, anti-ableism, trying to, to really bring that forward in every piece of who I am and how I understand myself and my gender. And that's, for me, how the political definition of queer and the individual identity definition of queer intersect. And it also relates to the way in which queer can be used as an umbrella term. So usually when I say queer, I'm usually saying queer and trans because I'm usually talking about like my community of queer and trans people. And when I'm saying that, I'm explicitly talking about people who share this understanding of a politicized understanding of gender and sexuality, right? So I'm talking about people who are actively pushing against the status quo. When I say queer and trans, I'm not usually talking about the lesbian and gay folks who are really invested in living a normative life and having, you know, two and a half kids and a picket fence and a house in the suburbs. There's nothing wrong with those things. But from a political, radical perspective, when I say queer and trans, that's who I'm talking about. And usually the people for whom queer is a really awful, hurtful word aren't part of that politicized group. They're usually part of different aspects of what is broadly understood to be the LGBTQ community, if that makes sense. So I'm getting into like super, <laughs> super like meta level on this. But when, but in order to understand how queer is used as a verb, you sort of have to understand the, the way in which that politicized thing comes into play. Because when you start talking about queer as a verb, you're talking about subverting the norms, specifically the norms around gender and sexuality, but really all norms. So if you're queering gender, you're subverting gender norms. If you're queering film, you're looking at film through a lens that subverts gender and sexual norms. What is the difference between being non-binary and being gender non-conforming, which is another phrase that people use a lot? It's important because, again, as language has evolved, those words have often been used interchangeably, but they have really distinct and different meanings. And it's really helpful to be able to understand those distinct meanings. And don't worry if this is all new to you, because like I said, it like 
five minutes ago, y'all, just happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> in terms of the, the the entire history of of the English language, that's why we're having you on the show. So yes, it's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. The easiest way to understand this is to go back to those three major factors that factor into gender, and those three major factors are biology, gender expression, and gender identity. These are totally separate things. So gender nonconforming is speaking specifically about gender expression. It's talking about how do you express your gender? And it's not just your hairstyle and what kind of clothes you wear, but it's also the career you have, the kinds of relationships you have and how you interact with other people, the space you take up, the mannerisms you have, your voice, your cadence and, and tone and, and all kinds of everything really, likes and dislikes, everything that fits into that, everything that gets mapped onto what we consider to be biological sex, right? Girls are supposed to like pink, like dolls, be nurturing, get a job that's nurturing, be expressive emotionally, have long hair as a child and short hair as an adult. What? All of these things are gender expression. And there are ways in which some folks fit very happily and easily into what's expected of them based on all the other things in their life. And there are ways in which other people chafe against those same things. So there's nothing inherently good or bad about it. It's just that's what expression is. So gender nonconforming means you don't conform to the norms and expectations for someone of the sex that you were assigned at birth. Gender non-binary or non-binary folks, that refers specifically to identity. So it's a totally different piece of the puzzle. A sort of co companion term, if we're looking at all three of these, if we're looking at biology, expression, and identity, the folks who don't conform in terms of biology generally are referred to as intersex folks whose biology does not line up with what we popularly consider to be the sort of defaults of female and male. And like I said, go listen to those wonderful YouTube videos to learn more about that. When we look at gender expression, gender nonconforming is the word we use for folks who don't align with the norms and expectations for the gender binary in that factor. And then when we get to identity, gender non-binary are the folks who don't align or conform to the binary when it comes to identity. So lots of non-binary people are also gender non-conforming, but not everybody who's non-binary is gender non-conforming, and not everybody who's gender non-conforming is non-binary. There's plenty of masculine women and feminine men out there, and that's great. When people are kind of critical of some of the political stances of being queer, being trans, being non-binary, I think one of the arguments is if society evolved past strict gender role enforcement, no one would have to have a trans identity or a non-binary identity that they could just express themselves without insisting on changing their pronouns. Interesting. I'm curious how you kind of conceptualize this question, because I, I think about this myself sometimes, about if we didn't name people differently based on their genitals at birth, if we didn't have different pronouns for different genders, uh, and if gender weren't kind of the first thing we used to describe people, how would that affect the way that we internally look at what identity means in terms of gender? There's a couple of different pieces to that query slash argument, because I feel like whenever I've seen that happen, it's people who are trying to invalidate trans people. 
And that's important. That context is really important. Can we actually imagine a world that you just described? Do we actually have the ability to imagine what it would be like if we didn't categorize people around gender and in which sexism didn't exist and patriarchy didn't exist and there were no power dynamics or imbalances or roles that were expected or expectations or stereotypes or norms? I can't imagine that because it is such an ingrained part of our culture. So as an exercise in invalidating trans people, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's not a world that is ever going to exist in our lifetimes. There's no way that we can abolish sexism, sexism and patriarchy, which themselves are rooted in white supremacy and colonialism. So in order to, to dismantle one of those, you sort of have to dismantle all of them, in my mind. And again, that would be a whole podcast. Yes. <laughs> We've got some big nods on our end yeah. for the people who can't yeah, see us. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to happen overnight. Um, and if that were to happen, hallelujah. I mean, that'd be great. And I don't know what the world would look like if we did get there. I don't know if in that world, people would still use particular words to describe themselves and ask other people to use other words to describe them, like pronouns. Like, I don't know if that would still be a thing that people would do or if those words and the ways in which we talk about each other are absolutely constructed and both by sexist and patriarchal systems and also in opposition to sexist and patriarchal systems, right? Because <laughs> language has completely been shaped by the idea that there's there's a gender binary. Certainly, romance languages have. So the, the exercise in trying to imagine that world is lovely from a place of liberation and social justice. But if it's being imagined as a way of saying, oh, everything's constructed, so why do you have needs? Like, <laughs> I don't understand that argument. If you try to argue with somebody who's making that argument back and say things like, especially people who are resisting name changes and pronoun changes. If you try to argue back and say, okay, well, you went through medical school for how long? A decade? And earned that degree as a doctor, doctor so-and-so. How would you feel if I called you a nurse? Gender is just constructed, right? It really flips it on its head. And now I'm making this argument because we all know that this is ridiculous. We know that the fact that doctor is gendered male and nurse is gendered female in this society is bullshit. <laughs> but when you actually push a male doctor, I'm bringing this up because this often happens in medical contexts where doctors and, and hospital and uh, medical staff are refusing to respect a person's name and pronouns. When you bring that up, they don't have an argument against that, right? So if everything doesn't matter, and why does it matter? Why does it matter that people have certain pronouns used for them? But it really matters to cis people who are invested in the gender binary. The entire argument is, is really fundamentally flawed on that level, just because as long as we have the system that we've been really completely ingrained in, we have to actually fight against it and also create room for people to move within that system because we can't dismantle the system overnight. So the best we can do is create as much room as possible for people to survive in a system that's literally trying to annihilate them. 
That's a fantastic answer. Thank you. I feel like my, my analogy for like, well, if tender is a construct, why does it matter? Is like, money's a construct, but try going to the store and saying that to the cashier, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just try living without it for a minute. <laughs> Like the bumper sticker, I'll be a post-feminist and a post-patriarchy. Like, it doesn't it doesn't exist. Exactly. Yes. Why do queer people snap when somebody says something they agree with? <laughs> what is with queer snapping? Well, actual snapping. Yes. It's a cultural way of saying, yes, yes, I agree with that. That's awesome. <laughs> I haven't been alive long enough to, or or have done enough research to know how it originated. But I can say that, like, when we talk about culture, when we talk about um, the, the real full meaning of the word culture. Often when we talk about culture, we're talking about like geographic borders and nation states and, and, or sometimes we're talking about ethnicity and things like this. But culture really is a shared understanding and experience and, and norms and ways of understanding the world within any group of people that, sh- that have something in common particularly around identity or location. Queer folks or people whose sexualities are different than the norm have a culture. Um, And that doesn't mean that all queer people snap, but it does mean that most queer people understand snapping (laughs) because we have a cultural context for it. (laughs) And that's true with lots lots of different things, right? You mentioned one place where people can find you on the internet, but we, we like to wrap up by asking, where can people find you on the internet? Okay, thank you. Yeah, so like I said, you can find me at transformingheartscollective.org and radicalcopyeditor.com. But I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at ZeisterAlexCapitan, that's Z-R-A-L-E-X-K-A-P-I-T-A-N. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank and you so much, Alex. Thank you. This is awesome. Yeah, it was really good. It's really fun chatting with you. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.